Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Biden is expected to slam election deniers in a surprise speech tonight. The lead starts right now. Six days from the midterms, President Biden has something to say, adding a primetime speech to his calendar, taking on the heightened political climate. As the election closes in, candidates are rolling out their closing messages. Plus, the plan to rope in Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas into an effort to overturn the 2020 election. Why a Trump lawyer called Thomas the, quote, only chance to delay the process. And North Korea's sinister moves firing off its largest number of short-range missiles ever in one day. As CNN also learns, the rogue nation is secretly supplying Russia with weapons. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake Tapper. The countdown is on in our politics lead. Just six days left until the votes are counted and the congressional balance of power decided. A brand new CNN poll suggests Republican candidates have the momentum. 51% of likely voters say they'll vote for the Republican candidate for Congress. That's higher than just a couple months ago. 47% say they'll vote for the Democrat, though the spread here is just outside the margin of error. Our CNN polling also showed Republican voters are far more motivated than Democrats. 38% of registered Republicans say they're extremely enthusiastic to go vote in this midterm election. And just 24% of Democrats say the same, just half what it was in the last midterm election. In the meantime, CNN's poll shows just half of Americans say they're at least somewhat confident in the outcome of the election. Democrats more likely to be confident than Republicans, 61 to 41 percent. And President Biden is continuing his final push toward Election Day with a speech tonight on protecting democracy. CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly is joining us live on that. So, Phil, you just heard how few people say they believe in the integrity of these elections. How will President Biden try to counter that? You know, I think that is one of the, I would say, three driving factors of why the president's speaking tonight. And keep in mind, this these remarks felt like they came out of nowhere. They were not on the president's schedule. That comes out every night, the night beforehand. They were announced this morning. But I'm told by White House advisors this is something the president has been thinking through, grappling with over the course of the last several weeks, looking for an opportunity to give a speech like this in prime time. It's something he did a few weeks ago in Philadelphia. This, however, will be a political event, and this is driven by a couple of key elements. The first is exactly what you're talking about. White House officials say the president has been alarmed by the sheer number of Republican candidates who have said, on the record, they or will not commit on the record uh, to uh, uh, accepting whatever the election results are uh, on when next, next Tuesday comes around. The president, to some degree, will try and get out in front of that and underscore the process in place here, including the fact that in some states they may not know the answer to who won any specific election on election night. We're all very familiar with that from 2020, the president included in that. But the other is, and I think this has probably been the most visceral or acute, has been the attack on Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi. The president obviously has a close relationship with the speaker, knows Paul Pelosi as well. But it's been the reaction, according to White House officials, 
officials of Republicans in the wake of the attack. Some Republicans have outright condemned it. Some have made very clear uh, what a problem it is, but others have remained somewhat silent. The joking about it, the conspiracy theories tied to it, those have really kind of unsettled the president. We've heard him talk about it a little bit in public over the course of the last couple of days. He will expand on that tonight. Keep one other thing in mind, though, as the president tries to draw a contrast between Republicans and Democrats, extremism on the Republican side, according to him. Democrats respond to this argument, and this will help outline that for Democrats. That will be something the president will talk about as well, Brianna. All right, we'll be watching Phil Manningly live for us at the White House. And we also have teams on the ground across the country. Let's go live to the battlegrounds of Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. First to CNN's Kyung Law, who is in Phoenix, where President Obama will rally Democrats tonight. Kyung, it's, it's much needed there, especially for the hotly contested governor's race. Uh, for the governor's race and for U.S. Senate. These are two races here in Arizona, Brianna, that are so close. They are neck and neck. And these candidates are really hoping for some of that shine that former President Barack Obama might be able to give them. But you mentioned those polls, those C the CNN poll that shows the momentum is on the Republican side. You can feel it here on the ground. We spent time with Republican nominee Blake Masters for U.S. Senate, and he is expressing extreme confidence, especially as he delivers a closing message on the economy. Democrats here tonight are hoping to sort of blunt that by tying Masters as well as Carrie Lake, the gubernatorial nominee, Brianna as extreme candidates backed by Trump. Brianna? And Kyung, last night there was a federal judge who imposed some new restrictions on how a right-wing group can patrol ballot drop boxes there in Arizona. What are you learning about that? Yeah, you know, really interesting restrictions that this judge imposed. These are two outdoor ballot drop boxes that have been really the source of conspiracy-minded people who are showing up armed and wearing tactical gear. And so this judge imposed distance restrictions, saying if you're going to show up and you're going to watch these ballot drop boxes, okay, it's a public space. You have to be 75 feet away. But if you're going to show up with a gun, you got to be 200 feet away. And the judge also ordered this, that the organizer, the one, the person here in Arizona who's really behind this, posts this on her social media page. She said, Quote, any past statements that it is always illegal to deposit multiple ballots in a ballot drop box is incomplete. A family member, household member or caregiver can legally do so. And that was posted on her social media page. Brianna, they're trying to blunt some of that misinformation that may be driving some people to these ballot drop boxes. All right, Kyung, thank you so much. And now to Georgia, where CNN's Eva McKend is in McDonough, where Stacey Abrams just held an event there. Eva, the state's current Republican Secretary of State, who's up for re-election, is dismissing Abrams' criticism over new voting rules. Tell us about this back and forth. Well, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and, you know, more generally Republicans in this state essentially argue that they've been vindicated, that this uh, early, ver uh, early massive turnout that we've seen during this early vote period uh, illustrates that voter suppression is not alive uh, and well in this state, pushing back against this characterization of SB 202, that controversial uh, voting law, as uh, Jim Crow uh, 2.0. But Democratic candidate for governor Stacey Abrams and Democrats argue that voter access 
process is still a real issue here. They're concerned about the more than 90,000 voter challenges in the state, and they're also concerned about local boards of elections. They fear that fear state takeovers um, if they want to expand hours. So uh, we are going to uh, see this uh, argument continue to play out uh, in uh, the, the coming week, uh, but very different positions on the impact of this law, uh, despite all of the people that we are seeing uh, turn out and vote during this early vote period, Brianna. All right, we actually see Stacey Abrams over your right shoulder there taking photos with her supporters. Uh, CNN's Jessica Dean is standing by in Bela Kinwood, Pennsylvania, where there's a whole lot of speculation that voters will actually split their ticket. Jessica, the Democratic uh, candidate for governor actually addressed this very possibility this morning. Yeah, he talked about it on CNN this morning, morning, Brianna, and, and he talked about uh, how he welcomes Republican support. For the record, he does support John Fetterman in this Senate race, but that he welcomes Republican support from Republicans across the state who might want to vote for him. It's worth noting, when I was talking to Pennsylvania Republicans, this was months ago. They floated this idea of a Shapiro, Josh Shapiro, uh, who was the Democratic nominee for governor, an Oz voter, and they thought that that could happen. Pennsylvania has a long history of split-ticket voting, so that is something that is floating out there. To that end, uh, Mehmet Oz was in uh, the Collar counties outside of Philadelphia. These are these suburban counties with a lot of swing votes. He was there last night. We were there for one of his rallies. He was really pitching himself to independents and moderate Democrats uh, in these closing days of the race. Now, John Fetterman, his opponent, the Democratic lieutenant governor, uh, is also going to be in this area tomorrow in these closing days talking to these independent voters as well. And of course, he's been trying to do the opposite thing, again, underscoring just how much uh, split ticket voting there can be in this state. There are Republicans for Fetterman. So we've seen it kind of play out on both sides. But it's worth noting it's the Oz Shapiro voter that we really did hear about, um, you know, again, several months ago. And that's continued to percolate. And it was something, as you mentioned, uh, that Shapiro talked about earlier today. Yeah, we'll see how real or how big of a thing that is very soon here. Jessica, Eva, and Kyung, thank you, all of right. you. So even as we look ahead to the midterms, we're also learning some new details about the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Former President Trump's election lawyers were banking on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas acting to delay the certification of Joe Biden's victory. This is according to emails that were obtained by the House January 6th committee. In these emails, his lawyers also expressed concern that Trump could be caught committing a crime if he made baseless election fraud claims in court documents. Let's bring in CNN Sarah Murray and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig on this story. Sarah, what did Trump's lawyers think that Justice Thomas could do for them? Well, essentially, they were hoping that Justice Thomas would weigh in and cast the results in Georgia into question. So they said, we want to frame things. This is an email from one of the Trump attorneys so that Thomas could be the one to issue essentially a temporary order putting Georgia's results into doubt. This is from Ken Cheeseborough, one of the Trump attorneys. He said that's the only chance to stop Congress from certifying the electoral vote on January 6th. As you dig further into these email chains, though, you also get a sense of what a long shot was this was in a later email. Cheeseboro says there's like a 1% chance that the Supreme Court would have actually intervened before January 6th, Brianna. Yeah, let's be clear, Ellie. This is Cheeseboro and Eastman talking about this in these emails. There's no evidence that Justice Thomas was actually involved in this. His wife, of course, was quite involved in efforts to overturn the election at the, at the state level. This raises, though, even more questions about why Justice Thomas didn't recuse himself from election-related matters before the court. 
Yeah, Brianna, this is exactly why people are saying, and I agree that Justice Thomas should have recused himself and should recuse himself moving forward from anything touching on January 6th, because even if we assume the best, even if we give every benefit of the doubt to Justice Thomas and assume he had nothing to do with this scheme where he's being discussed, even if we assume he has never discussed Ginny Thomas's activities, his wife's activities to try to overturn the election, still there's an appearance of a conflict of interest. The public will rightly question whether Justice Thomas is impartial. And just to make a comparison, if any Supreme Court justice's spouse worked for a company and that company had a case in front of the Supreme Court, that justice would surely recuse, even if they never discussed the company or the spouse's work. In fact, Justice Thomas did recuse himself off a case back in the 90s where his son was a student at the Virginia Military Institute, VMI. The fact that VMI was part of a case caused him to recuse. So he did the right thing back then, but he's not doing the right thing now. And Sarah, tell us about these emails that show how Trump's lawyers were actually concerned about him making false claims in court. Well, yeah, I mean, that, this is the heart of sort of why we have been able to get these emails, why the committee has been able to get these emails is because there was a judge that was concerned that this was essentially evidence that there is a potential crime. And what it shows is there are these Trump attorneys who are very worried that Donald Trump is going to sign on to a statement as part of a court filing, put this before the court with numbers about, you know, for instance, people who voted who they said were felons, people they voted who they said had actually died, that then the Trump attorneys knew were inaccurate and that they had told Donald Donald Trump were inaccurate. You know, so there is a line in one Eastman email where he points out the potential legal jeopardy of Trump signing on to this, saying, I have no doubt that an aggressive DA or U.S. attorney someplace would go after both the president and his lawyers once all the dust settles on this. It gives you an indication of just how worried they were about the legal implications of this plot as it was playing out. Yeah, it sure does. And Ellie, what does all of this add to the bigger picture of these efforts to overturn the 2020 election? Well, Brianna, it's firsthand evidence in the very words of the lawyers involved that they were looking to do two things. One, just delay, just get some friendly judge or justice who was willing to at least just put a temporary procedural hold on things and then use that to sort of leverage an argument on January 6th. And second of all, most importantly, these emails show that they were doing it based on what they knew to be bogus or fraudulent information to the extent they weren't even willing to let the president, their client, sign on or were reluctant to do that. So that's why we see John Eastman taking the fifth. That's why we've seen DOJ searching John Eastman. I think these emails are further evidence that he, that he could be in real trouble. All right. Sarah Murray and Ellie Honig, thank you to you both. Thanks. A dreaded announcement for so many. Six days from Election Day, your interest rates are going up yet again. So how might that play with voters at the polls? Plus, Demanding answers, the strongly worded list of questions from a top Democrat today about security for lawmakers in the wake of the Pelosi attack. In our politics lead, President Joe Biden set to deliver a speech tonight on protecting democracy, addressing the threat from election deniers and those who seek to undermine faith in voting as we near the midterm elections here in just six days. Joining us now is senior advisor to the president for public engagement, Keisha Lance Bottom. She's also the former Atlanta mayor. Keisha, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I think it's such an in important day to talk about this because there are election de denying Republicans. We're getting a clear picture now through polls who could very well win. And these are election denying Republicans, some of whom Democrats actually helped in the primary against moderate Republicans, hoping that they'd be easier to beat in the general election. How was the president giving a speech about democracy tonight 
when his own party propped up candidates that are anti-democracy? Well, what the president will remind us is that democracy is fra fragile. And we know that there's been an attack on democracy. We saw it in real time, January 6th. Congressman John Lewis was my congressman, and he reminded us that the right to vote is almost sacred. He also said uh, that he was concerned he would wake up one day and our democracy would be gone. So what we need in this country is for people to go out and be able to vote in free and fair elections without fear of intimidation, making sure that their votes are accurately counted. And that's the bedrock of our democracy, and that's what the president will, will remind us of, amongst other things, this evening. But some people in your own party supported anti-democracy Republicans. Was that a mistake for them to do? I, I can't speak to that, but what I can say is that the president has been very clear. He ran on a platform of restoring the soul of this nation. And at the end of the day, each person who is registered to vote has the right to vote for their candidate. You win some and you lose some. I have kids and I've supported them in Little League games. At the end of the game, they go and they shake hands and they get up and they try again another day. If candidates across the country would only do the same thing. We saw the attack on our democracy. We saw the attack on law enforcement January 6th. And we know of the news of the horrific attack on the Speaker of the House's husband just this past week. So people uh, across this country have the right to vote for whomever they choose to vote for. Um, but that's what democracy is all about. And that's what our president will remind us of this evening. So you have previously raised some concerns about lagging Democratic voter enthusiasm in Georgia. And we're seeing some new poll numbers that show this is also a national problem. Just 24 percent of Democrats are extremely enthusiastic. That's actually down 20 points from the 2018 midterms. Is that something that surprised you at all? Well, we know that we've been through a very tough time in this country over the past two years. We've been through a pandemic. We've not experienced that in our lifetimes. We saw the assault on our nation's capital on January 6th. People across the country, rightfully so, um, have been discouraged in many ways, but there's always this opportunity to get it right. We saw that happen in 2020 with record turnout in elections. And people have to remember that the most important election day will be on Tuesday. So I know that we are looking at early turnout numbers. Um, that's a snapshot. What we need to look at um, will be the final numbers that we see on Tuesday night after the, all of the polls have closed. Nikkel Terry Ellis, who is our senior race and equality writer here at CNN, found that political analysts, researchers, and black male leaders say politicians are failing to reach some black men with messaging that resonates with them and visibility in their communities. Those are shortcomings, she writes, that could particularly hurt Democrats in the upcoming midterms, given black men are the second most loyal voting bloc for the party next to black women. Are you worried that that may have an impact in Georgia? Well, I know in my home state, we've seen the numbers of black men turning out to vote holding steady. That's very encouraging. And I, again, we've got to look at our fi final numbers on Tuesday. But I can't say this. The president of the United States vowed to make sure that he had an administration that reflected this country. And President Biden has held steady to that. I stand here today as a senior advisor to the president. There are uh, a record number of women, of people of color in this administration. And 
Um, when you have a government that reflects who you are, your needs and your priorities. I just left uh, a Zoom session, an economic impact session with uh, nearly 800 African Americans across the country sharing what the Biden-Harris administration has done from student loan debt relief to the Inflation Reduction Act that will make sure that uh, prescription costs are capped at $2,000 a month, uh, $2,000 a year, $35 a month for insulin. All of those issues not only resonate with African American men, but they resonate with people across this country. Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you so much for joining us from the White House. We appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, from the economy to abortion rights, the brand new CNN poll showing where voters stand on their priority issues six days out from Election Day. So we're back now with big news and our money lead. The Federal Reserve just made history with its sixth rate hike of the year, this time by three quarters of a percentage point. The Fed's most aggressive policy move in 40 years, which will likely deepen economic pain for millions of Americans with just six days to go until the midterm elections. Which brings us back to our politics lead. New CNN polls showing us the issues that are top of mind for voters, economy and inflation dwarfing everything else with abortion access, the only other issue in double digits. Overall, it's a great sign for Republicans who voters say they trust more than Democrats to handle the economy by more than 50 points. So let's discuss this. I mean, Abby, more than 50 points, that is 71 percent to 18 on who voters trust more to deal with the economy. That's basically a Grand Canyon. Yeah, it's a huge advantage. And that's why we're seeing the dynamics that we're seeing right now a week uh, out from the, the midterms. Voters who care about the economy as their number one issue prefer Republicans or at least believe that Republicans might be better suited to deal with it. And even voters for whom the economy is maybe not their top issue, they some of those people still also believe that Republicans are more suited. What you, where you see Democrats doing well is among uh voters, this is according to the New York Times poll that they recently had in some districts, voters who think that these broader societal issues are more important to them lean heavily toward the Democrats. It's just that I think right now where the electorate is, they are outnumbered in a lot of the competitive districts by people who are very worried about the economy because it's just it's every day in their kitchens, in their homes. They're dealing with it every time they wake up. Why aren't they trusting Democrats? I mean, that's a chasm. Well, because what you have is conventional wisdom and history, which is says that the current party, the, the president in power, is going to lose seats. But look, here's what I'll say. If that was going to be a hardcore truth in this election, why aren't Republicans putting this away? And they aren't. The economy might be the thing that every single voter says is their number one issue, and they might trust Republicans more than Democrats. But, Abby, to your point, voters can go to the polls with more than one issue on their mind. And if you look at my my biggest question going into this election cycle was, is the trend that we saw in the five House special elections, and especially in New York 19 with Pat Ryan, and what happened in Kansas— is that going to hold water still? And what we're saying in the early vote, and we were talking about it earlier, is that it is. Right now, Democrats are leading the early vote by three million votes. And so that is not a little thing. And no one is treating it as, it, if, as if it was a huge deal. And it is a huge deal. Why? Because that's not a poll. 
These are votes that are already banked. And from a strategic campaign standpoint, what that does is that gives campaign strategists the opportunity to now go after their low propensity voters. And one other point I'll make, I still think there is an underlying, uncounted uh, number of voters, women, newly registered women voters, newly registered young voters, newly registered voters of color that will never show up on polls because if you haven't polled before, pollsters do not count that. And I think that is going to be something that we're going to see. There's a lot. There's a lot there. I mean, look, the one (laughs) thing I will say is that if you talk to and you listen to what vulnerable Democrats, especially in House seats, are starting to say, which is something Maria did not mention, is that they don't feel that the party has really come up with a good economic message from the top. And there also isn't much of an acknowledgement that the policies of the Biden administration, including, you know, massive spending first on their uh, covid related package and then again on you know what they call the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of Republicans are trying to convince they're spending a lot of money trying to convince voters that that's why inflation is there. And Democrats haven't really come up with a great answer for it. And you're starting to see that on the trail. And, you know, it ties into, you know, what what Biden is is going to do tonight when he makes this speech. And I think the question and, you know, Maria alluded to it. Right. Democrats have been trying to say there are all these other reasons mm-hmm. to vote for us. Right. Even if you're worried about the economy, you should care about our democracy. Even if you're worried about the economy, you should be you should care about Roe versus Wade. There is evidence that voters do care about those issues. And the reality is Democrats have to fight on that turf because they can't fight on the on the economy. And that's just the difficult reality. Sarah, I wonder when you're looking at this, what do you think is the floor and what do you think is the ceiling when it comes to the Senate and what Republicans can get? Yeah, I think the floor is probably holding even. I think uh, the ceiling, Republicans would like the ceiling to be 55. I think it's probably closer to 53 because, look, the fundamentals are all going Republicans' directions. They should be crushing and cleaning up. They should be picking up these races in New Hampshire and Colorado. But I don't think they're going to. And the reason that I think in places like New Hampshire it's unlikely, even though there's quite a good candidate in Colorado, the reason that they're not going to do as well as I think, you know, right now the fundamentals would suggest is they've got a candidate quality problem. You know, the, the New Hampshire pickup, yeah. which is which is possible, is a guy named Don Bolduck, who is an election denying lunatic. And he, the, here's what the, the reason those CNN numbers would be so concerning to Democrats is because I think swing voters will not vote for these crazy candidates. But if turnout collapses among Democrats, that's where you get into wave territory and in big trouble. for. And, and there's no evidence that that's going to happen. That's the point that I want to make. Everyone is, is, is pretending as if these early vote numbers don't matter and that the intensity that we have seen in, in this cycle up until now doesn't exist. And it's there. You mentioned Bolduck in New Hampshire. And what we're seeing from the polls is, like, he could win. I mean, that's a possibility. You could see uh, him win in New Hampshire. And let's not forget, and I just asked Keisha Lance Bottoms about this. She sidestepped the question. But a Democratic super PAC tied very closely to Democratic leadership in the Senate put over $3 million into making him essentially the nominee, thinking that he would be an easier candidate for Maggie Hassan to deal well, with, right? Well, they're probably correct, because if there was a different candidate who was not an election denier, as Sarah used the word lunatic to describe him, then it's likely Maggie Hassan's polling would actually probably be worse. Sure, However, but now if he on- wins, then what are Democrats going to say when he's out there saying this stuff when we're chasing him around with microphones in the Capitol? On a day where, as a for instance, you have Democrats and President Biden is giving a mm-hmm. speech about the importance of democracy and safeguarding it. 
yes. right? And he's an he's an anti-democracy Republican. Yeah. By that argument, I also think. I mean, this the the converse part of Sarah's argument is that uh, de- Republicans do have a candidate quality problem, and yet. These races are very competitive, which is why I think this gamble that they made with some of these candidates who are much more fringe, uh, it, it, it's questionable. Because in a wave environment, these candidates can definitely win. I, I think we should just be clear about that. It's not like, I mean, you know, Don Bulldog, he's in a competitive race in a, in, in a, because of the environment, not in spite of it. And I think that's that is a good point. But back to that, this actually should be an undeniable red wave. And it's not the last the the ad buy that Mitch McConnell is closing on in Iowa for Chuck Grassley. Trump is going to Iowa for Chuck Grassley. Chuck Grassley. We're competitive in Iowa, in Ohio, in North Carolina. These are not places where Democrats in what should be a Republican red wave election should even be thinking about competing. And we are. And while all of these polls, everyone's saying it's red momentum, Democrats are still up or tied in the key Senate races. I guess it's also probably a good point that bad candidates matter, good candidates matter too. And that is Iowa, North Carolina, Ohio. Those races are competitive, perhaps in spite of the environment, because you have a candidate situation that is a little bit different than what you might expect. Especially in Ohio. Guys, thank you so much for the discussion. I appreciate it. Ahead, the new questions that a top Democrat is asking today after the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband for questions just sent to the agency in charge of protecting lawmakers next. And we're back with our national lead. And just in, a top Democrat is demanding answers from the U.S. Capitol Police after last week's violent assault on Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This is the alleged attacker told police he was on a, quote, suicide mission and had other prominent state and federal politicians, including their relatives, on his hit list. CNN's Josh Campbell is joining us live now from San Francisco. And Josh, this is the chairwoman of the House Administration Committee, Zoe Lofgren, writing the incident and related circumstances, including the manner in which the speaker and her family were targeted, raised significant questions about security protections for members of Congress, particularly those in the presidential line of succession. Uh, Has Capitol Police responded at this point in time? They have. We just got a statement from the Capitol Police, and it's important to note what this letter uh, does. This is a very thorough letter from the chair of the House Committee on Administration. She's asking two things. She wants to know what policies and procedures were in place by the U.S. Capitol Police to protect the Pelosi residents behind me, and were those policies followed? And also, what are they going to do going forward in order to ensure that they are lashed up with local law enforcement, that these buildings are protected, not just in Washington, but also when members of Congress are out in their district? Capitol Police releasing a statement a short time ago saying that they are uh, working on answering some of these questions, but they say, I'll read part of it, the department has begun an internal security review and will be gathering input and questions from our congressional stakeholders. We will fast track the work we've already been doing to enhance the protection of members of Congress outside Washington, while also providing new protective options that will address concerns following Friday's targeted attack. And we'll we'll recall, after the January 6th insurrection, uh, there were numerous recommendations that were made to the Capitol Police 
police about things that they should change, things that they should do better. And what the Capitol Police is saying is they will now fast track uh, a lot of those recommendations that pertain not just to protecting the Capitol building in Washington, but also buildings like the one behind me where residents live when they're not in the D.C. area, Brianna. Josh, thank you so much for that. Josh Campbell live in San Francisco and also just in a judge has just formally sentenced the gunman who killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. CNN's Carlos Suarez is outside of the courthouse in Broward County, Florida. Carlos, tell us what just played out in court. Yes, so that formal sentencing is taking place right now up on the 17th floor of the Broward County Courthouse. The judge has sentenced Nicholas Cruz to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She is going over the 34 counts in this case. 17 of those counts were for first-degree murder. 17 of the other counts were for attempted first-degree murder. A reminder that the jury was not able to come back with a unanimous verdict on the 17 counts of first-degree murder, which is why she is sentencing Nicholas Cruz to life in prison without parole. This was a death penalty case, however, because the jury was not unanimous under state law here in Florida. The judge had no decision but to sentence him to life in prison. Today's formal sentencing marks the end of two days of victim impact statements where we have heard from a number of the family members at MSD as well as students that survived the shooting. Each of them went up before the court and told Cruz how they felt. And so at this hour, Cruz is learning his fate. We're told he's expected to be turned over to the Florida Department of Corrections at some point later today. Brianna. And another very difficult day for the families of victims and for survivors of that shooting. Carlos, thank you so much. Ahead, what likely sparked North Korea's barrage of missile launches, plus the weapon supply mission to Russia that the rogue nation may be trying to hide. Topping our world lead, North Korea firing more missiles in a single day than it ever has before. South Korean officials counting at least 23 on Wednesday, which prompted South Korea's first air raid warning in six years. CNN's Will Ripley is in Seoul, where South Koreans are wondering what prompted Kim Jong-un's latest provocation. In South Korea, where North Korean nuclear threats often feel like background noise, this startling sound. The first air raid sirens in six years, urging Ulungdo residents to seek shelter in underground bunkers. A North Korean missile came dangerously close to the island, crossing the northern limit line, a de facto maritime buffer zone between the north and the south. Pyongyang never officially recognized that line. Until Wednesday, they never fired a missile over it either. South Korea's president, Yoon Suk-yong, holding to his hawkish stance on North Korea, calling the launch an effective territorial invasion. The missile actually fell just shy of the South's territorial waters. He infuriated North Korea this week, forging ahead with Operation Vigilant Storm, South Korea's largest combined military air drills with the U.S., five days of war games, 240 aircraft, thousands of service members from both countries, Pyongyang's foreign ministry promising powerful follow-up measures. For the Korean Peninsula, a day of unnerving firsts. 
the first time North Korea launched at least 23 missiles in a single day, skyrocketing tensions to levels unseen in half a decade. The first time South Korea and the U.S. responded by firing surface-to-air missiles near the North's territorial waters. CNN counts 29 North Korean missile launch events this year, including a barrage of eight missiles in a single day back in June. And back then, we thought that that was a lot. Now here we are, almost three times that amount, and it just keeps on coming. So why, Brianna, does Kim Jong-un feel like he can just do this without any consequences? Well, simple. He knows that China and Russia have veto power at the United Nations Security Council, and he knows that Xi and Putin are in no mood to work with the West and the U.S. right now on punishing Pyongyang uh, as they bolster their own authoritarian alliance. And he knows that President Biden's eyes are focused on Ukraine and the upcoming midterm elections, which raises a lot of questions about what does he have planned next? Maybe that seventh underground nuclear test. Yeah, we'll be watching for that. Will Ripley in South Korea, thank you for that report. U.S. officials think that Kim Jong-un has been secretly supplying Vladimir Putin with artillery shells for his unprovoked war in Ukraine. Katie Bo Lillis is part of the CNN team that broke this reporting today. So, Katie Bo, tell us how North Korea, how U.S. officials believe North Korea is trying to conceal these secret shipments. Yeah, Brianna, so according to recently declassified intelligence, the U.S. believes that North Korea is trying to make it appear as if these shipments are going to North Africa or the Middle East, anywhere but Russia. And remember, North Korea is one of the toughest intelligence targets for the United States, right? It's an incredibly opaque target. So as recently as a couple of weeks ago, U.S. officials were telling us that they had seen no evidence that these expected shipments of North Korean artillery had actually made it to the battlefield in Ukraine, leading some officials to speculate that North Korea might actually be backing away from its agreement to its alleged agreement to provide this kind of military support to Russia. So it gives you a sense of how sort of opaque this space is. Now, thanks to a new piece of intelligence that has recently been declassified, the Biden administration does believe that these shipments are proceeding. But it's important to note that at this point, it doesn't seem like the United States has actually seen any of these artillery shells actually on the battlefield in Ukraine, with National Security Council official John Kirby saying earlier today that the U.S. is still monitoring to see whether or not Russia has actually received these shipments. Yeah, and that's really key, right? That's really key. So also very key is this question of whether Russia might use a nuclear weapon. And I know that you are also hearing that there are U.S. officials who are divided on intel assessments of that. I, the biggest issue here, Brianna, is that there's one decision maker on the nuclear issue in Russia, and that's Vladimir Putin. And as all intelligence officials will tell you, they cannot see in between his ears. So, for example, like as in earlier today, when we reported that the U.S. has some intelligence to suggest that Russian military officials have discussed speculatively how to whether or not they might use a nuclear weapon, uh, the only decision maker that matters is Putin. And it's not clear what his thinking is. Katie Bo, thank you so much. The new call to ban the overwhelmingly popular TikTok app in the U.S. next. In our tech lead, a top official at the Federal Communications Commission tells CNN the U.S. government should ban TikTok over concerns the Chinese-owned social media app may turn over Americans' data to China's government. The FCC doesn't have the ultimate say on whether to ban TikTok, 
but a commissioner says he has little confidence there's a path forward despite ongoing government-level negotiations. TikTok did not respond to a CNN request for comment. And coming up on CNN tonight, Jake talks with Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, who is in a tight race to hold his seat. Jake also has late-night host Jimmy Kimmel tonight at 9 Eastern here on CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 